can remember sitting outside of uh, Pooter High School in a car with my friend, and I was in college at the time and was volunteering and serving with an organization called Young Life, and we would go on to high school campuses, and we would talk with high school students and strike up friendships, and, and our, our hope was that we would eventually have the chance to share Jesus with them and, and point them to the great God that we know. And it was the very first time I was walking onto a high school campus with that purpose in mind, and I was paired up with what I would consider to be, and he would admit, not the strongest of our leaders. And so we went on to this high school campus and saw a group of high school guys standing in a circle talking, and he says to me, this was his training for me, um, I think you should go up and talk to that group of guys. And so I went up and I sort of, you know, busted in their circle and I said, hey guys, how's it going? And that was as far as I'd thought. And they looked at me and, and, um, and I went, big gulps, huh? And none of them had seen Dumb and Dumber. And none of you have either. So it was really, it was that moment with like, with, with like eight high school guys. And I can remember walking back to him and he says to me, I don't think that went all that well. And I'm like, well, no thanks to you. It didn't go that well. You observe right. And, and I can remember going back to the car, hanging my head in shame, thinking, why in the world do we do this? Why, why am I... Why am I putting myself in this position to be embarrassed and to be made a fool? I don't need this. Why, why in the world are we doing this? Over the last few weeks, I've um, picked up a, a few books by a prominent author and outspoken atheist named Sam Harris. Listen to what Sam Harris says. In one of his books, The End of Faith, he says, The power that belief has over our emotional lives appears to be total. For every emotion you're capable of feeling, there's surely a belief that could invoke it in a matter of moments. He goes on to write later on in his book that the danger of religious faith is that it allows otherwise normal human beings to reap the fruits of madness and consider them holy. I was struck by Harris's book because while I disagree with much of his premise, I think he's right in a lot of things. I think Harris understands the nature of faith far better than many followers of Jesus do. To answer the question, why did I walk onto a high school campus and talk to people I never knew and might never see again? Well, well, it was... It was just this faith that was stirring in me. And, and it's that same faith that Harris talks about. Uh, well, not in the same thing, but it's the same type of conviction. This is the way the world is. And one of the things Harris picks up on is this faith that followers of Jesus have and that people of other faiths have is powerful. It's one of the most powerful things in the world. Faith is so powerful. It will cause people to do some pretty amazing things. Um, I saw... Um, uh, Dateline episode just a few weeks ago that talked about the, the fundamentalist uh, Latter-day Saints church, and this is its leader, Warren Jeffs, and his four wives, and the story was about one of his daughters who wanted to leave and was being abused, and she just, she couldn't bring herself to leave until she just hit rock bottom, and I thought, what in the world keeps a person in that situation? Well, for one, Faith. Um, in 2013, in Pakistan, there, there were 869 what they've called, they call honor killings. 
It's when a person in your family brings disgrace or shame on a family. They, they, they don't sort of brush it under the rug. They don't pretend it didn't happen. When, when you shame your family in a Muslim culture in Pakistan, what happens to you is you're either stoned in the streets or you're mutilated or murdered um, by your family. I read one story that happened just earlier this year in September about a girl who was raped, came back to her family, and because of what happened to her, her family honor killed her. Why? Well, it's this faith. It's, it's, it's sort of, it's this idea of this is what the world is like. In uh, the late 30s and early 40s, we saw what an idea, what faith can do when 11 million people were murdered in concentration camps. A day that we'll never forget in the United States, uh, 2011, uh, September 11th, 2001, uh, where two, build- two planes were flown into the World Trade Center buildings. <laughs> Listen to what Harris says about that event. Sam Harris writes, The men who committed the atrocities of September 11th were certainly not cowards, as they were repeatedly described in the Western media to be. Nor were they lunatics in any ordinary sense. They were men of faith, perfect faith as it turns out. And this, it must finally be acknowledged, is a terrible thing to be. Now, while Harris's stance on being a follower of Jesus is off, his perception about the power of faith is right on. And it's different than what you would hear in most churches. It's different than you'd hear what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Typically, we don't attribute faith to having, well, this kind of power, do we? But if you look at it, all around you, uh, the fruit of faith, not necessarily faith in Jesus, but faith in something is exhibited on every corner of the globe. Faith has unbelievable, massive potential and power for good or for evil. But I would argue that John, in his letter of 1 John, understands faith to have the kind of power and significance and momentum and energy that Sam Harris describes that it has. I think he's spot on when he describes the potential and the power of faith, and it's stronger than most followers of Jesus give it credit for. And so what I want to do today is I want to teach from the scriptures what Pastor John, in the closing chapter of this letter that he writes to the series of churches that he loves, that he helped plant, that he is over, that he writes to them about the power and the prominence and the potential of faith. And here's what he says. If you open your Bible, 1 John chapter 5, that's where we're going to be camping out today. Here's what he says, and listen, as he writes about the power, prominence, and potential of faith. Here's what he says. He says, everyone who, say this word with me, church, beliefs. Um, This would be the same word, faith, is translated from this one Greek word, pistis. Will you say that with me? It's just too fun to say alone, okay? So um, that's the word as we talk about faith, as we talk about belief, it's pistis in the Greek. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. He says, okay, okay, so when you believe Something happens on the inside that there's this spiritual awakening, this spiritual, the Bible searches for words and calls it a a rebirth of sorts. 
as you believe. John would say, oh man, faith, unbelievable potential. And everyone who loves the Father loves whomever has been born of him. Verse 4, skip down with me. Here's the second time he talks about faith. For everyone who's been born of God by faith overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our what? Faith. So John goes, oh man, church, don't miss it. By faith, you overcome evil. You overcome hate. You overcome lust. You overcome anger. All the things that are intertwined with the way of the world, quote unquote, your faith is what empowers and enables by God's grace and the spirit at work in you to overcome. This is not an insignificant thing. In verse 13, John says this, I write these things to you who believe. So, so here's what he's doing. If you ever took a class in college where um, you were supposed to read this big, thick, boring book, but at the end of every chapter they gave a summary, and you got smart, and you thought, wait a second, this is a succinct summary of everything I just read. So you decided, I'm just reading the summary. This is what John's doing. He's going, look up at me. Don't miss this. I am writing these things to you. The reason for this letter to you who what? Believe in the name of the Son of God that you would know that you have what? Eternal life. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, when you believe you have the kind of life in you that bubbles up and never stops. When we read the words eternal life, we typically think of heaven. But if you have your Bible open, what you can see is that John does not talk about heaven in this chapter. He talks about life in the here and the now. And when the scriptures talk about eternal life, typically what they're talking about is the kind of life certainly that lasts forever, but the kind of life that you would want to last forever. It's eternal in both quality, oh, this is good, and duration. This is good and it's never going to end. And what John says is, oh, Faith. Faith is the way that you step into rebirth and renewal. Faith is the way that you step into victory. Faith is the way that you step into what the scriptures call eternal life. Here's what John would say. That faith is, is the doorway into the life God designed you to live. Faith, faith is the, the doorway into and the path to living in the life that God designed you, wired you, and longs for you to live. John would say to his churches, faith has the potential to completely transform a life forever. I, I grew up in a church for the, my teen years. That ended, the church service ended in the exact same way every single Sunday. The pastor would finish his message and then would add on this sort of addendum, and I'm not knocking this, I'm just describing it addendum of um, a, a sinner's prayer. So if you want to put your faith in Jesus today, pray after me every single Sunday. And while it took a little bit of the mystery out of where we were going, it also caused me to start to wonder, where do we get this idea? Where did we get the idea that, that faith is the equivalent of, of a prayer? 
Because as I look at the way of Jesus and as we study the words of Jesus, certainly Jesus invites people to receive him and he invites people to confess their sin and have faith in him. But if we're under the notion that he stops there, we've missed the greater part of the New Testament. That if faith just ends with a prayer and we're like, all right, well now we can get on with whatever we had going on. We've missed the point of what this word means in the New Testament. See, a profession of faith and a life of faith are two different things. And I think what Sam Harris points out is the power and potential of faith. He's he's more on than just say this prayer and everything's going to be okay. When the Bible talks about faith, it talks about a life of surrender to Jesus as Lord, not just about saying a prayer. If you have your Bible, flip over just a few books to the left, and the book of Hebrews gives this entire chapter, we're not going to read the entire thing, but is a picture of what it means to live by faith. And, And here's what the author of Hebrews says. He's using the same word, pistis, that we're looking at in 1 John. Now, faith, he says, is the assurance, or maybe better, it's understood as the, the substantiating, the, the bringing something that's off in the distance into the present, bringing something that's in the future into the now. Faith pulls the future into the present, the, the assurance of things hoped for. And the conviction, the certainty, the, 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 um, it's the ground underneath we stand of the things not seen. See, I think sometimes from this verse we get to this idea that faith is certainty in the sense that we never doubt. But if you read through the chapter on faith, Hebrews 11, here's what you'll find. You'll find people who doubt it. You'll find people who doubted but were unwilling to let go. I think that's a far better picture of faith. Faith and doubt are not opposites. They make way better dance partners than they do polar opposites. That faith is saying, no, 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 no. I'm confident, God, in who you are and of what you've promised. And even though I don't see it and even though I may never see it, I'm going to continue to pull it into the present with a conviction that you are good. Faith is about striving to remain faithful in the midst of uncertainty. See, see, an affirmation of faith and a life of faith are two different things. Faith in a moment and faith daily are two different things. And I can tell you, will you look up at me for just a second? Jesus is not inviting us or calling us to just say a prayer and check it off of our list. He's calling us to surrender a life and to find more joy than we ever, eternal life, than we ever thought possible. Dallas Willard talks about the life of faith like this. He says, The greatest issue facing the world today, with all of its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence steadily learning from him 
how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. This is the life of faith. This is the invitation that God gives us. And this is powerful. This, that type of faith, can change the world, has changed the world, has changed the world. So let's jump back into 1 John and say, all right, what does this life of faith look like? What does it look like exhibited in our lives on a daily basis? Let's jump back in verse 2, because John's going to say a few things. Here's what it looks like. Here's the litmus test of faith, and here's what the life of faith continually pushes towards. He says this, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commands, he goes, listen, if you want to know if you love God, it's pretty easy. Do you obey him? Do you love the people around you? He goes, well, then you know, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we, what? Obey or keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not, what? Burdensome. Oh, I love this. 16-year-old me didn't believe this. Right? I, I was in high school. I, I was being dragged by my parents to church. If you're here and that's your situation, I'm praying for you. You might be a pastor someday. <laughs> just saying. Just saying. And I thought, oh my goodness. What it, here, my summary of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus was you just try to do everything that's not fun. That, that's what, what it means to be a follower of Jesus is. If it's fun, you can't do it. And you shouldn't. And for some reason, God loves that. And he's out for that. And he's going, eh, bet you can't wait to get to heaven, huh? 16-year-old me was like, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I'm in. Now, college me had that completely turned on its head because as I started to follow Jesus, what I realized is there's no better adventure, there's no better purpose, and there's no better meaning that I could find in life. But John wants to push back and say, okay, if you think being obedient to Jesus is, is let's just take all the fun out of life, let's take all the joy out of life, he goes, you've got it completely backwards. He says, following Jesus is not, is not burdensome. Literally in the Greek, it's, it's, not, it's not weighty, or a better picture is, it's not confining. That's what that word means. So picture like a straitjacket, that oftentimes we think of commands like that, right? Like all the stuff I really want to do, I can't do. And the stuff I'm told to do, I don't want to do. And we think, oh man, th this is the life of faith. <laughs> and John says, oh, actually, actually, you've got it completely different. You've got it completely turned on its head. It's, it's not burdensome. It's, it's actually, it's freedom. So Jesus will say to his disciples in John chapter 8, actually, we'll get there in a second. Faith exhibits itself in delight-driven obedience. And listen to the way Jesus talks about this. John chapter 8. It says, and Jesus said to the Jews who'd believed him, they believed him. They, they had confidence in him. They put their faith in him. He says this to them, if you abide in my word, if you make your home in my word, you are truly my disciples. So as you abide, you become disciples, apprentices, learning to live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And then, after you do that, you will know the truth. See, truth was a subjective. You get inside of it and go, oh, this is the way you designed me to live. 
This is what's wired into my DNA as a human being. I didn't see it from the outside looking in, but from the inside, oh, now I get it. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Not, not put a burden on you. It'll, it'll free you to walk in the design that God has for you. It's why Jesus says, come to me. Come on. All you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your soul. Because my burden is easy and my yoke is light. So, so come on to me. It's, it's, not, it's not burdensome. It's an invitation of delight-driven obedience. So I think John would say, if you're a person of faith, what steps of obedience are you resisting? Maybe, is there, is there some sense of like, this is what God's called me to do, but I just have too much fear to step into it? Is, is there a sense of, man, I know, I know God would have me be generous during this Advent season, but you have no idea what my calendar looks like. Uh, is there the idea, man, I would forgive that person if they asked for it. And if they apologized, what steps of obedience are we resisting? Because here's what we're really resisting. What we're really resisting is delight, is freedom, is goodness. And this is what faith leads us to, to say back to God, God, I trust you, I have faith in you, and so I'm going to walk in your way. If you say to do it, God, I'm going to do it, even if I don't get it. Here's the way. And he continues, jump down with me to verse 14. So we start to see what the life of faith looks like. He says this, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, towards God. That if we ask anything according to his will, what? He hears us. He hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So here's what John starts to do. He starts to dispel some of the roadblocks that you and I and his original readers have towards prayer, right? Because it's, it's nothing new to wrestle with prayer. It's nothing new to ask questions like, God, do you actually hear when I pray? And John goes, Oh, not only does he hear, he hears you. And Peter would echo, not only does he hear, but he cares. First Peter chapter 5, verse 7. So, so you can pray. And the life of faith is the praying life. He hears us. And God moves through the prayers of his people. I don't know the mystery of, of how it works. God's sovereignty and humanity's prayers. I don't know how those two things intersect and intertwine to shape and form the reality and the future that, that we live and will live. I, I don't presume to, presume to know the answer to that. If anybody does claim to know the answer to that, be very, very skeptical because it is a mystery. But here's what I do know. <laughs> I do know that in the scriptures, we are very clearly commanded to pray. And we're commanded to pray with the confidence that God moves through the prayers of his people. And not only that, but prayer is... So my question is, if I'm asking about prayer, I'm asking God, God, do you hear me? God, do they affect you at all? And my other question is, God, does it affect our world at all when your people pray? 
I think to that last question, Karl Barth answers it pretty well. He says this, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Here's what Bart would say. If you want to start a revolution, start praying. It doesn't start on the throne somewhere. It starts with somebody on their knees saying to God, God, we need you to move. Prayer is a beautiful, subversive, and powerful act. See, I think when it all comes down to it, we really don't struggle with prayer. What we struggle with is faith. But here's what faith believes. Faith believes that we have his attention. He hears us. And it inspires our petition. So we cry out to God. Listen to the way that John goes on in verse 16. Now, I would add that verse 16 and 17 have no light amount of literature written on their meaning. Okay? So if you were to get 10 commentaries on 1 John and read them all, they would all have a different idea about what this actually means, okay? So, but I'm going to solve that for you today, so here we go. <laughs> it says this, if anyone sees a brother committing a sin not leading to death, he should ask God and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that does lead to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> there's, there's three primary um, views of what's going on. One is that there's a specific sin that John has in mind that is an issue in his community that he's addressing. The second is that John is addressing apostasy, leaving the life of faith. And the third prevailing thought, and this is probably where I'd land if you pin me down, is that he's addressing what the scriptures would call uh, blasphemy against the spirit. It, you can read about it in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. And essentially what it means is that you see God working, you see God moving with eyes wide open, you understand it as such, and you refuse to acknowledge it, and you vehemently push against it. But in all the scholastic things that I've read, I think here's the, here's the way that I would understand this, and here's the way I would apply this. Here's what John says. If they're not dead, pray for them. There you go. There's a sin that leads to death, and they're dead. You, don't worry about that. If they're not dead, pray for them. Pray that they would come to know Jesus. Pray that they would come to know freedom. Pray that they would come to know life and eternal life and, and pray for them. It's what we call the, the ministry of intercession. That's what John's talking about here. Going to the throne room on behalf of somebody else, begging and pleading, God, heal that marriage, we ask you. God, free that person from the anger and the lack of forgiveness and the bitterness that confines their soul, please. God, heal that person, we pray. It's the ministry of, of intercession. And here's the way that I would say it. Prayer isn't the thing that we do when there's nothing else we can do. It's the first thing we do. Because if God doesn't move, it doesn't matter what we do. On September 23rd, 1857, a man by the name of Jeremiah Lamphere was a Dutch Reformed pastor in New York City. 
And his church was on the decline, and he started to sense from God that he needed to get outside of the walls of his church and start to minister to the people around him. So he started a one-hour-long prayer meeting in a conference room in a business park in New York City. And he went on September 23rd, 1857, and he sat down at noon after putting pamphlets around and little flyers up advertising this time. And he sat down in this boardroom and he started to pray and he started to wait. And he looked at his watch and five minutes in, no one was there. Ten minutes in, no one was there. Twenty minutes in, no one was there. And he said he committed to staying for the entire hour to pray alone, even if no one else showed up. And a half hour in, six men came and sat down and joined him for the last half hour of prayer. The next week, 40 people came and sat down and joined him at this hour of prayer. Within six months, 10,000 people business people in New York City were gathering Wednesday from noon to one and praying every single Wednesday. And within two years, a million converts, people who put their faith in Jesus, were added to American churches all across the states. Started with one conviction. God moves through prayer. It's called, if you're curious, the Businessman's Revival of the 1800s. So maybe this Advent season, as we embark on that next week, maybe you decide, man, prayer's not going to be a last resort, it's going to be a first resort. And and maybe it's just five minutes that you're going to wake up, you decide you're going to wake up in the mornings and just spend some time praying, spend some time intercessing, spend some time asking God, God, move, work, redeem, show your hand mighty. Because the life of faith is the life of prayer. And maybe it's doing exactly what John says to do. We're, we're just going to pray for people who, who need it. Right? I, mean, I just encourage you right now, let's just pause for a moment. If God brings somebody to your mind, let's just, not out loud, just spend a moment praying. Here's how this letter closes. John is going to lead us through three convictions framed as we know. We know, we know, we know that end his letter. Here's what he says. We know, number one, that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. So if you have the spirit of God in you and you're walking with Jesus to live contrary to the way of Jesus and the heart of Jesus, just doesn't make sense. He's going to continue to pull you back and pull you back and make you miserable and pull you back so that you surrender to him for your joy and his glory. But he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. And we know that we are from God and the whole world lies under the power of the evil. And he goes, we have this conviction. We've been born of God. And we live in the way of God. The the whole world lies under the evil one means that anybody who lives in the way of the world, he talked about it in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That when we choose that way, we live under the power of the evil one. He controls those things. But our world is birthed in conflict. Conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of his enemy. 
Conflict between the kingdom of love and the kingdom of hate. And we need to choose which one we're going to live in. And when we live under the kingdom of the world, we live under the power of the evil one. And he says, finally, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. We, we get it. We've seen him. First verse, uh, chapter one. We've seen him. We've touched him. We've heard him. We've experienced him. Each of these words, we know, we know, we know, is the Greek word, weida. Will you say that with me? Weida. Both of you did. Thank you. I appreciate that. It makes me feel good. Weida. And it means book knowledge. It's the knowledge that you can get if you read through this Encyclopedia Britannica that you have at home with dust gathering on it, okay? By the way, if you have one of those, you should get rid of it and just get Wikipedia. It's a lot easier. That's for free, okay? But that's Weida. That's, that's intellectual book knowledge, okay? So then John leads to and we know and we know and we know that the Son of God, no, the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may, what? Know Him. Ah, not Weida. It's not. This no here is gnosko. Will you say that with me? Gnosko. And here's what that word means. It's experiential, firsthand. I've touched it. I've seen it. I know it in the depths of my bones, not just in my head. Knowledge. We know, we know, we know, so that we may know him who is true and good and beautiful. And here's what John is saying. Objective truth is the ground for subjective but very real spiritual experience. We know, we know, we know, but it doesn't just end here, so that we may know and experience the love that God has for us. That's what the life of faith leads to. Intimate relationship with Jesus. In John chapter 5, verse 10, just a few verses earlier, John mentioned, he said, whoever believes has faith in the Son of God has the testimony, the witness in himself. They just, they know they know God. They know that even though they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, they can fear no evil because he's with us. They, they, they can't quantify it, but they know it. They know that he who's in us is greater than he who's in the world. They know it. They know that greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus calls you friends. They, they, they know it. It's in them. They're walking with Jesus. They're talking with Jesus. They're meeting with Jesus. They're living with Jesus. They're not living for Jesus. They're living with Jesus. John would say, this is what the life of faith does. So I think the question we have to wrestle with is, man, have we intentionally cultivated this relationship? One of my favorite authors is named Henry Nouwen. And at the end of one of his great books, he, he called Spiritual Direction, he writes about going to visit the circus and he goes, writes about being enthralled by the circus and going back a, another day and eventually introducing himself to the fry, flying Rodleys, these people who would be launched into the air and have to grab the arms of another person, trapeze flyers, they were called. And listen to what Nowen writes. He says, the next day I returned to the circus to see them again and introduce myself to them as one of their greatest fans, 
They invited me to attend their practice sessions, gave me free tickets, and asked me to dinner, and suggested I travel with them for a week in the near future. I did, and we became good friends. One day, I was sitting with the Rodleys, the leader of the troop, in his caravan, talking about flying. He said, as a flyer, I must have complete trust in my catcher. The public may think that I'm the great star of the trapeze, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He has to be there for me within split-second precision and grab me out of the air as I come to him in the long jump. How, how does it work, Nowen asked. The secret, Rodley said, is that the flyer does nothing and the catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, I simply have to stretch out my arms and hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me in safely over the apron behind the catch bar. You do nothing, Nowen said to him. Nothing, Rodley repeated. The worst thing the flyer can do is try to catch the catcher. I'm not supposed to catch Joe. It's Joe's task to catch me. If I grab Joe's wrists, I might break them or he might break mine, and that would be the end of us both. A flyer must fly and a catcher must catch, and the flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there for him. Now one concludes by saying, I want to live trusting the catcher. So do I. I want to live trusting the catcher, not in, not in a one-time affirmation, but, but in, a, in a daily walk. See, here's what Sam Harris and his friends get right. Faith has unbelievable power and unbelievable potential. But, but here's what they get wrong. What they get wrong is they don't see that faith has been used for unbelievable good in the world and followers of Jesus, you included, are responsible for making God's world an even more beautiful place. Let me give you one example as we close. The Catholic Church is the largest non-governmental, you know, provider of healthcare services in the world. They have 18,000 clinics, 5,500 hospitals, and 65% of them are located in third world countries. Why? Faith. Because they believe that that's what Jesus would do. And so do we. Here's the other thing they get wrong. The other thing they get wrong is they think that non-faith is an option. <laughs> Let me tell you, non-faith is a non-option. We all have confidence and faith in something. The question is, is that something going to catch us? Because we're all flying through the air. And if we think our bank account, and if we think our reputation, and if we think our accomplishments, and if we think our other relationships, if we think anything else in the world is going to catch us, we are mistaken. You know what's interesting is that John doesn't end his letter, little children, keep yourself from unbelief. No, here's the way he ends his letter. He ends his letter by saying, little children, keep yourself from idols. Not, not keep yourself from unbelief, but keep yourself from wrong belief because we all have belief in something. And here's my, as we close this book and this series, here's my invitation to you. Would you ground your life on the God who says, I am light and I am life 
and I am love. And would you live a faith, not just just an affirmation, but an action? Because that faith is powerful. That faith has changed the world, and it will change it again. May it be our faith and God's power through us that does that. Amen? Amen. I would invite you to stand up. Typically, what we do is we do our time of, of prayer and ministry after the service, but what I'd like to do is something a little bit different today. And so if you're a part of our prayer team or our elders, what I'm going to ask is that you just gather sort of up on the sides of the stage here and around if you need to. But I'm going to ask you if, you're, um, if you'd like prayer, and maybe it's, man, I'm really praying and I'm, I am struggling. I'm struggling to believe. Maybe that's why you come. Or maybe it's, I've had all this stuff that happened in my past and all this baggage and all this pain that I'm carrying and I, I just need God to break through and I need to, I need to hear his voice. Come forward and pray maybe, maybe it's just, man, I'm, I'm struggling to walk with him. Come forward. I'd invite you as our prayer team comes up and as we all sing this last song as our benediction together, would you take this opportunity, seize this moment, have the courage to come forward and let us pray over you. We would love to as we close our time together. Let's sing this wonderful song and I'd invite you to come forward for prayer. <laughs>